You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Well, good morning. How are you doing? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 and find verse 15. As you're turning there, I'll introduce myself. My name is Jamin. I'm one of the pastors here at Citizens Church. And if you're new, then you are uh, catching us probably seven, uh, eight or so weeks into a series in the book of Colossians, and we'll pick up um, in verse 15 in just a moment, just to kind of acknowledge something that, that Bleeker acknowledged at the beginning of service. We have uh, with us this morning our crew from Focus, so it's our middle and high school students that are here. Did you all have a good time? Oh, okay, all right. Um, and then I just want to acknowledge something, because from where I stand, what I get to see is I get to see that, you know, kind of over here in the, in the right uh, we've got our middle and high school students who went to focus over here on the far left. We've got uh, our UTD crew that comes and they kind of take our 1115 service over at least this section. And then t- together, what I know is kind of corporately, what we make up is we make up the, the family of God together when we gather, those who have uh, confessed Christ as Lord. And, and so what we believe to be true is to come in and, and kind of with, with that spectrum, I know that maybe the middle is comprised of, of those who are not middle or high school or college, but are older in some different uh, ways, right? And yet God can just meet us all where we are and use us all where we are. And there is none uh, that is too young to be used and empowered by God and none that's too old to be disqualified from God uh, still doing a work in your life and in your heart. And so I'm just mindful of that standing here, seeing what I'm seeing. And so praying uh, that God would would do that uh, among us this morning. 15 through 20, what we've said is a song. It's a song that Paul either wrote uh, in writing to the church in Colossae, or it's a song that the early church uh, used to sing that Paul is just using and leveraging uh, to, uh, to make the point that he wants to make in this letter. Uh, and we have been uh, in this song for some time now. In fact, when I first started um, scheduling out the series that we were going to be in, the Colossian series, I had us originally doing verses 15 through 20 all on one Sunday. Uh, and now this is week five in verses 15 through 20. And so I say that to just say this, uh, although I have been reading the Bible for some time and then even teaching the Bible for some time, I still find myself underestimating the depth of God's word. And so what we see here is a, a depth of truth about Jesus that is just worth slowing down for. Let, let, me, let me kind of give a hope for, for this morning that's, that's similar to what we've been saying the past four or five weeks. But we'll wrap this song up in 19 and 20. And here's what I'm hopeful for. Uh, our youngest, her name's Ayla. She's 18 months old. So we've got three. We've got Asher, who's eight. We've got Adeline, who's six. And then we have Ayla, who's 18 months, uh, give or take some weeks. And so we've got a pretty big gap, almost a five-year gap between Adeline and Ayla. And so, so much of Ayla coming into the world uh, and her growing older has been me just remembering what the seasons are like. So just having forgot so much of what it was like to have a newborn, then forgot so much of what it was like to have an infant. And, and, and as she grows, I'm just kind of reminded from season to season what it's like to have a child of that age. And so here's the season that she entered into about three weeks ago. Uh, she has been walking for some time, but now she is just moving. Like she is uh, kind of more steady on her feet and she can climb and she can run and she's growing in coordination as much as her genetics will allow her to, right? And what that means is, is she a couple weeks ago entered what I call the scavenger stage. She is into everything. 
She's into the cupboards and she's into the pantry and she's into the laundry and she can just get in, which just kind of like actually just are confusing that she can get into. And what that means is throughout the day, she will come out of a room or she will come out of, you know, walk into the kitchen and she has something that she shouldn't have because she's been into something that she wasn't supposed to be in, right? So she'll pull the cords from behind the TV, which is safe, and she'll get into the fireplace and pull rocks out of the fireplace. Or the other day she walked into the kitchen and she had my toothbrush, which is confusing and super gross. And so um, it's just, that's, that's her. And that's what, that's, what, that's what life with her is like right now. Her favorite thing to do is to get into like this crafts drawer that we have in the laundry room and to grab as many markers as she can and basically pull all the lids off and to just do her work, right? It's like she walks into the room, any given room she walks into and she just says, you know what, I could, I could destroy this place. And that's what, she, that's what she tries to do. And so her favorite thing to do is to get the markers. And, and here's, here's what will happen after she gets the markers. One of two things. Uh, I will either engage her and say, and try to reason with her, right? Hey, Ayla, you can't have those, babe. And, and, I'll, and I'll make my case, right? Like you're drawing on yourself. You're going to draw on other things. You drew on the couch. That's why we can't have nice things. And so I need you to let go of those things and give those things to dad. And if I do that, she'll lose her mind. She just screams and freaks out and throws a fit, right? Or what I can do is I can go to her. Well, I can go get in the pantry and grab the box of Lucky Charms. Uh, sometimes, yes, we feed our children processed food full of refined sugar. That's why we pray a lot. So I'll get the Lucky Charms and I'll take them to her. And if I show her that box of Lucky Charms, here's what happens every single time. She does this little dance. She lets go of the markers and she runs to get into her chair, right? And those are the, the two methods of engaging her, right? One is, hey, you need, to, you need to let go of what you're holding on to, and here are all the reasons why. The other is, hey, don't you want this more? Don't you, don't you crave this more? Wouldn't this be so much better? And in that moment, there's this letting go and, and holding on. I know it's a, a simple, somewhat childish illustration, but there's actually something of depth to that interaction, there's something that's happening with her that is true about the human heart and is true about the way that we as humans are wired and is true about the way that we actually change as people. In fact, there's a guy named Thomas Chalmers and uh, he preached a sermon that became a book and it's entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he makes this point in that sermon. He's preaching to his church in Scotland. He's a 19th century theologian, preacher, and he's preaching 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things of the world. And then just poses a very simple question. Okay, how? How do you stop loving the things that you shouldn't love? Okay, if I shouldn't love money and I shouldn't love control and I shouldn't love comfort and I shouldn't love power and I shouldn't love possessions, how do you stop loving what you shouldn't love? And in that sermon, which became a book, you can read it, it's a free PDF online, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, he says one method is to reason. One method is to point to the emptiness of holding on to whatever you're holding on to and to say, hey, look, that thing will hurt you or there's consequences there. But what he says about that is he says that that is uh, basically the less transformative approach. In fact, he uses stronger words about it. He says it's altogether incompetent and ineffectual. He says how you actually change, how your loves change, how you learn to stop loving things that are less and to, and to love the things that you should love is by having something that's more worthy of your love put in front of you. 
having something that is uh, just so much infinitely uh, better and more beautiful and more grand and having that held up and offered to you. And then what happens is, is you're not just told to let go of what you shouldn't have, but you in your heart desire to let go, not for the sake of letting go, but for the sake of holding on to something that you more want to hold. And it's this expulsive power of a new affection. Colossians 1, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20 is Jesus held up as the thing in your life and in my life that is most worthy of our love. It is this new affection that is held up in front of us that it might have the effect of expelling things in our life. And so that's how we've walked through these verses in in different language, right? That we would ask that God would expose the gaps in our hearts, that we might love what we know, that we might want the things that we should want because we see Jesus for who he is. And to see him for who he is means there is this release of things that are not him. And so maybe if you remember the way that we've had the conversation, right, it would be to see Jesus in such a way that what's expelled from our life is trying to find satisfaction in things that are cheap and fleeting. And what we hold on to is Jesus who is infinitely satisfying. What would be expelled from our life uh, is this uh, desire in us to control our own world leads to fear and anxiety and to let go of that and to hold on to Jesus who holds all things together, uh, who is the beginning. And so it's why we've said From the very beginning, as soon as we looked at verse 15, five weeks ago, it's why we've said this is not just theology, it's not just information, it's art, it's poetry, because it's going after not just right thinking, but it's going after loving rightly what we were made to love, responding rightly to what we were made to love. And and, and Jesus is just wonderful in the presentation here. Image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation, by him, in him, through him. He's the beginning of the age to come. He conquers death. And here's the reality. The reason why we have to have this conversation, Christian, is because this is a process. This is a process. Meaning, this is where the story of Ayla breaks down, just like all illustrations eventually break down, right? For, for, for her, there's this thing that she's holding, there's this thing that she's offered, and the letting go holding on happens in a moment. She drops what she has, she holds on to what she wants, and, and I don't think I'm alone in this, but when I became a believer, I didn't become a believer in, in a moment, love all the right things, and in that same moment, let go of all the wrong ones. So there's gaps in our lives. There's ways that we need to be reminded over and again, right, that this is a process, that to follow Jesus is to say, I'm committed to a lifetime of letting go and holding on, and letting go and holding on. And for many of letting go, holding on, grabbing the thing I let go of, and then being reminded to let go and hold on again and again. In fact, we could, we could just do a quick experiment. Is anyone by show of hands in a place in their relationship with Jesus where they have let go of all less, lesser loves and held on to Jesus as completely as he demands. Anybody? I don't know if you're, if you saw this, no one's raising their hand, which only means nobody lied in that moment, right? So this is a process for all of us, and that's where we've been these last several weeks. And so my hope in saying all that is just to say this, what we should expect out of today, what we should expect really out of any Sunday or any time we encounter God in his word, is we should expect 
once again to be invited. No, 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 no. Remember to hold on to what's worth holding on to. And you're invited for God in his mercy and his grace to maybe even pry our hands off of the things that are not worth holding on to. And what I love about 19 and 20 is what it highlights about Jesus. Let me, let me, let me give you my, my statement that, that, that captures 19 and 20. That what we see about Jesus at the end of this song is that he uses power we don't have to bring peace that we cannot earn by absorbing death that without him we could not escape because it pleased him to do so. Let me put it in a way that's not quite so wordy. He saves you because he loves you. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Praise God. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was what? Give me the word. Pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 19 and 20. For 20 to mean what it needs to mean to us, we have to understand what Paul says in 19 when he says, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Here's what he's saying about Jesus, that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. For for, I would, uh, most of the room, if not all the room, knows that to be true. The fullness of God pleased to dwell in Jesus. But what Paul's doing is he's making a very specific point here. He said in 15 that he's the image of the invisible God, which means if we're wondering how God responds to us in our failure, if we're wondering, is God patient with us? Is God ever overwhelmed by our needs? If we're asking questions about the character of God, what we see is we see those questions answered in Jesus. Jesus defines what God is like. He's the image of the invisible God. But for him, for the fullness of God to dwell in him, says that he is God, but highlights his deity in a different way. If you ever hear that language used about God in the Old Testament, it is God's powerful presence in a place. The glory of God filled the temple. What it's saying about Jesus is that Jesus is God. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus, and we should expect to see out of Jesus the kinds of things that are only true about God. Let's spell that out a bit, because in spelling that out a bit, it helps us understand what makes 20 so remarkable. If you read the life of Jesus as presented in the Gospels, what you will see is you will see kinds of things coming out of him, the kind of power coming out of him that only describes and can only be attributed to the fact that he is God in the flesh. Three things to highlight quickly. You see in the life of Jesus this power over creation, You see in the life of Jesus power over events and circumstances, and you see in the life of Jesus the power to know the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So power over creation. Uh, You will see these different stories from the Old Testament rehearsed in the life of Jesus. Let me give you one. Uh, God feeds his people in the wilderness, manna from heaven, because he's the great provider. He's powerful over creation. Jesus is in the wilderness. He takes loaves of bread and he feeds his people in the wilderness because he's the great provider. It's the power of God, the fullness of God in him. 
Throughout the Old Testament, God and God alone has command over the storms. God alone has command over the waves and the waters and the winds. And so God can bring floods or God can part seas. In the Psalms, David over and again will say about God, you alone can save me out of the waters. And so it is an exclusively divine activity to control and command the storm and the winds and the waves. And what Jesus does in Mark chapter 4 on a boat is he calms the storm because the fullness of God in him. The danger of referencing a story like that in a room like this is that it's so familiar for so many of us that it kind of loses its shock. But think about it. Like two weeks ago, when those awful storms came through DFW, the tornadoes that came through, and would you continue being uh, in prayer for our friends at Northway down in Dallas as they're continuing to rebuild and seek the Lord on what's next for them? But as those storms come through, right, and you're just reminded of that kind of strength, here's how it it played out in my house. We're uh, at home. The storms start coming through, texts start coming in about all the damage and different things. And I'm sitting on the couch, responding to these texts, making a few phone calls. The Cowboys game is on in the background. And then all of a sudden in our neighborhood, the sirens start going off. So we live a couple of streets behind the old campus. And so we're right in the heart of Plano and we hear the sirens. And I thought that the the storm was a little bit south of us. And so Carrie and I are having this conversation. Do we get the kids up? They're already asleep. Do we wake them up? Do we go into the bathroom? Do we get the mattresses and the pillows and do the flashlight thing and all that, right? And what do we need to do? And so as we're having that conversation, trying to figure out what our next step is, the the thing that never crossed my mind was to go outside and to try and rebuke the storm. (laughs) Ever. I never thought, you know, I'll I'll take care of it, right? Like, in fact, imagine me walking outside and Carrie saying, wait, wait, what are you doing? I was like, I'm going, to go, I'm going to go talk to the winds, right? She'd be like, babe, we've talked about this right? so many times. You're not Jesus. So uh, when Jesus is on a boat and he commands the storm, like the power, the kind of power to be someone that doesn't have to make a plan to endure the storm, doesn't have to make a plan to be protected from the storm, but has the kind of authority to shout it away. Here's how the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it when it tells the story. This is the book that we read to our kids, and it tells the story like this. Jesus stood up and spoke to the storm. Hush, he said, that's all. And the strangest thing happened. The wind and the waves recognized Jesus's voice. They had heard it before, of course. It was the same voice that had made them in the very beginning. They listened to Jesus and they did what he said. He's God. He's God, the fullness of God, pleased to dwell in Jesus. And you see coming out of him this kind of power that makes him scary. That's why his disciples, after moments like this, are afraid because he's more than a man. You also see his power over events and circumstances. And we can just highlight this quickly. Uh, Jesus will often, things like this will happen. He'll tell his disciples, hey, go into a city. In the city, there's a man who has a cold. I need the cold. The man's going to ask you why you need it. Tell him that the master wants it. And he sends them out. And it happens just like he said it's going to happen. Plenty of times where people are going to come to take him to make him king or come to take him to kill him. And it's not his time yet. And he knows that. And so he just disappears. He just disappears. He is in sovereign control over the events of his life. And listen, friends, for all of our advancement in technology, for all the access that we have to information right now, none of us in the room know for certainty what the next hour of our life looks like. None of us. 
Jesus, sovereign over all of his life and all circumstances in his life, just like God, because he is God. And then lastly, you see in Jesus' life, he has the power to know the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This, this might be the scariest one. Like, um, you will see Jesus talking to these religious leaders, and he will respond not to what they say. He'll respond to what he knows they're thinking In Matthew 9, it says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you have evil in your heart? He's just like God. The very first, one of the very first conversations God has with humanity after sin enters the world is with a guy named Cain. And he says to Cain, who's jealous of his brother, sin is crouching at your door. How does he know? Because he's God. He knows the heart. He knows the thoughts. And if you're around Jesus and Jesus does this thing where he's starting to speak out loud the thoughts that exist in people's minds and the desires that exist in their heart, how do you feel? If I come up to you after service, hey, I'd love for you to come to uh, dinner with me and a friend of mine. Maybe we could just go grab coffee together and I'd love for you to meet him. By the way, uh, he, can, he knows what you're thinking all the time. Uh, he knows what's in your heart and he also knows everything you've ever done. Would you like to come? What do you say? You're like, no, I can't. I'm sick. I'm going to go to the dentist for fun that day, right? It's just like you don't want to be in that room. Why? Because of how exposed you feel, how uncovered you'd feel. Well, Jesus, the fullness of God in him comes out as a knowledge that only God has. Knows Peter's going to deny him. Knows Judas is going to betray him. In fact, Peter's restoration in John 21, if you remember, is around him coming to the conclusion. Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter finally says, you know all things. You're God. You're God. So it's the fullness of God in Jesus. Listen, this is not the point, but this is worth saying as somewhat of an aside. What that means is there's a way to say be like Jesus, which is us being invited into obedience. And there is a way where you can say be like Jesus, and that's being invited into sin and idolatry. Meaning there are ways that Jesus is different than us and we're called to imitate him. Where he's merciful in ways that we're not merciful. Where he's loving in ways that we're not loving. Where he's just and holy in ways that we're not just and holy. And the call would be to be like Jesus. To conform to the image of Jesus. But there's ways in which Jesus is different than us. And we are not called to imitate those things. If I were to say Jesus is all powerful, that's not an invitation for us to try to be like Jesus and pretend we're all powerful because we're not. We don't have the resources. And I wonder if for many of us, it could be that so much confusion in our life, in our relationship with God, or maybe so much of the lack of growth is because we spend so much time trying to be like Jesus in ways that we've not been called to be and so little time trying to be like him in ways that we have. Spending so much time trying to be powerful over our circumstances So much time acting like we can rightly judge someone's heart and thoughts towards us when in reality we just don't know. And so little time pleading with God to cultivate in us hearts that mirror the heart of Jesus. So little time pursuing the things that make us like Jesus and make us truly human because we believe the lie that like Jesus, we can be more than human and can act like God. Don't confuse the two. When it comes to Jesus' heart and character and the way that he loves and the way that he obeys, we are called to imitate and to conform. But when we see Jesus, the ways in which he is powerful and other than and divine, we are called not to imitate, but to worship and to revere and to be humbled by and to submit 
to him. 19, the fullness of God pleased to dwell in Jesus. Power over creation, power over thoughts, power over circumstances. I said all of this, I said all of that to be able to pose this question to you, friends. What could verse 20 say? What could it say? Jesus, if this is just a fraction of what it means for Jesus to have the fullness of God, just three examples. He controls the material world, sovereign over the events of the world, knows everything about me and everything about my heart and my past and my thoughts. What could that make him to us? Dangerous, a threat. How it could read, it could turn in so many ways from here. 19 could read, in him, all the fullness of God pleased to dwell. And 20 could read, and he uses that power to bring that kind of power that crushes creation and be justified in doing so as a holy God. It could read, all the fullness of God dwells. And through Jesus, God rids the world of all evil and he conquers evil by making his creation bleed. And if you balk at that, if you sneer at that, you and I have only to remember that he knows your heart and all your thoughts and all you've ever done. And with that knowledge, he doesn't measure it against all the people you know in your life that are worse than you, whatever that means, but measures it against his untainted, unblemished, unapproachable holiness. 20 could be so scary. 20 could be so devastating. 20 could just overwhelm us in judgment. But what does it say? The fullness of God pleased to dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is God more than a man has power that we simply don't have, and he uses that power to make all things right. He displays that power not by making his creation bleed, but by shedding his own blood, being the kind of God that bleeds so that his world might have peace, so that your life and my life might have peace. He uses power we don't have to bring peace that we can't earn by absorbing a death that without him we could not escape. That's a different picture of power. That's a different picture of the pursuit of peace than what you find in the world. Um, I don't know if, if you did this when you were a kid, but uh, as kids I remember playing this game with my brother and my cousins, uh, the game that we called King of the Mountain. Maybe you had a different name for it. Here's how it would work. We would make a mountain we would create this mountain out of like pillows and sheets or couch cushions. Or if we were playing outside, we would make this mountain out of like dirt and rocks and wood and everything else that hurt. And then what would happen is, is that you would climb on top of it. Someone would climb on top of the mountain that we just made and they would declare themselves to be king. I'm king of the mountain. And then what would happen? A fight would ensue. Somebody would challenge that claim and try to push you off the mountain and you're trying to defend and all that and it was, it, was, it was fine and painful and it always ended with somebody getting in trouble or somebody getting hurt, right? And that's just how it went. But here, here's what's true about it too. Always, always, at the very end of the game, there was nothing left of the mountain. Always destroyed. 
What was a pile, a mountain of pillows and sheets is just like scattered throughout the living room. What was like this pile of dirt and stuff is just scattered. And so the mountain has disappeared underneath the fight, right? And what happens is, is in, in someone's claim to be able to rule over this mountain, right, as they try to defend that claim, the thing that they say that they can rule and protect is trampled underneath their feet. And that's how power works when wielded by the world that there's this claim to be able to be king and then in fighting to bring that kind of peace, right? What always happens is the thing you claim to rule over is trampled underneath the fight. And so you see this, this what, what, what would have been so true to this uh, church reading this letter as they lived in Colossae is that they served a king, Caesar, who claimed to be able to bring Roman peace. And what we know in 2019 is we have the hindsight of history to know how this played out. They built an empire. Someone climbed on top of the empire, claimed to be king, and then the fight ensues. And what gets trampled on? The empire. Nothing remains. You go and see the Roman Empire as ruins that you go and visit on vacation if that's how you vacation, right? And so that's, that's the world. Or maybe to make it more personal, how many of you uh, saw this in your home as mom and dad fought over who was king or queen of the marriage or king or queen of the family? And as they fight, who's trampled on? You are. The home is. The family is. You know Why? Because the kind of peace that the world needs, the kind of peace that empires and countries need, the kind of peace that family needs, the kind of peace that human hearts need requires the kind of power that humans simply don't have. Simply don't have. Would you see Jesus here? Would you see what this means? See how different he is? He's already king. He's already in charge. That's what 15, 16, 17, and 18 is all about. This is all made from him. It's all held together through him. And what you see in Jesus is that he could stand on the mountain. He could climb on top of the thing that he rightly rules over. And then he could defend that claim by watching all who oppose him, all who are different than him, all who are weaker could watch them crumble underneath him. But that's not who our God is And that's not what our God does. He climbs the mountain, the fullness of God, pleased to dwell and to reconcile at what price? His own life. He goes on top of the thing that he loves and he stands on top of the thing that he created and he defends his claim to be king by allowing himself to be trampled on. By bleeding instead of requiring blood, he has a power that we don't have and brings peace that we can earn by absorbing death that without him we could not escape. So here's the question. What else is worth worshiping? Who else is worth having in your life as that object of your greatest affection, that affection in your life that has this expulsive effect on all lesser things in your life? Like Jesus as the one who loves enough and is brave enough and powerful enough to use all that power to bring peace between you and your creator at great cost to himself. And we could stop. I could just pray. I'm not going to. And, but that would be enough to just leave it at that. But it says something else here that's just so beautiful, my friends. Why? Like if the fullness of God dwells in Jesus and he makes peace through the blood of his own cross and reconciles heaven and earth, did you hear the reason 
it gave that God did this? Did you hear the why it pleased him to do so? It was his delight to do so. He saves you because it pleases him, because he delights in you, because he loves you. You ever gotten that gift that's just so extravagant and unexpected that your first reaction is, why did you do this? Has anyone ever been kind to you in such a way that was at such great cost to themselves, things that they sacrificed or ways that they were present with you and your first reaction as you're just seeing their kindness and seeing their kindness and seeing their kindness, your first reaction is to question it? It's so undeserved that it makes you curious. Why are you doing this for me? Why are you giving this to me? Why did you purchase this for me, right? And if the answer is because I need something from you in return, doesn't it taint the gift a bit? But... If the answer is, I just wanted to. Jesus has all the fullness of God that dwells in him, and he uses his power to make peace with us. He uses power we don't have to bring peace that we can't earn, absorbs a death that without him we could not escape. Why? Because he wanted to. It pleased him to do that. It delighted him to be obedient to the Father and to extend love for you. And if you question the act, how could you give so much of yourself? How could you sacrifice? And if the answer you get back is because it pleased me to do so, the only explanation is love. The only explanation to that kind of sacrifice is that he loves you and that he loves me. What would you see? that Jesus is being held up. And in 15 and 16 and 17 and 18, it just shows him for who he is in his power. But in 19 and 20, Jesus is being held up and we're being invited to hold onto him as our great affection. Look right at me. Because he first made you his. Respond with love to the love that has been so powerfully and sacrificially and irrevocably offered to you. Friends, gosh, of all that you could hold on to in this life, you will not love anything. You will not find love anywhere from anybody like the way that you are loved by Jesus. Most clearly seen that he made peace with you by his own death. Do you think about what we've said. Think about what's true about Jesus that he knows all, that he knows everything about you, that there's nothing about you that's hidden from God, past, present, and future. And he sees your unadorned life, and he sees your uncovered life, and he sees your exposed life, and it pleases him to look at you with all of that unveiled and with all of that revealed and says, I want peace with that one. Whether you just heard that for the first time or whether you've heard that your whole life, I don't know of something that we repeat more often that we are so quick to forget. And you know why? Because most of us live our lives and believe deep down that we are loved by others only because of what they've not yet discovered about us. That sure, they love me, or sure, they're kind, or sure, we're friends, or sure, we're in relationship, but it's only because this is what they see. And if they ever saw this back here, if they were to discover more they would love less. And even in those relationships maybe where you are known, like somebody who knows you more than anyone else knows you, where you are known and you are still loved, right? Even that came by way of a scary process. 
Like Carrie and I have been married for over 11 years now when we first started dating. Like so much of our story can be told or so much of my uh, interactions with her can be told as a fear of discovery, right? So in the first six months, it's like, I don't know why she's dating me. Like I really can't figure it out. And so I I thought in those first six months that there was coming a time where she would discover something and that would be the deal breaker. So she would call and my little Nokia flip phone would ring and it'd be her uh, number on the screen. And before I'd answer it, my first thought was, this is it. Something about our last interaction, something about the last phone call, she just found something out or figured something out and, and, and this is it, it's over. And thank God that didn't happen. She, she's just gracious and patient and turns out she had super low standards, which is great for me. Uh, but then as we are, are moving more and more towards marriage, it's like there's a different conversation that happens that needed to happen. It's like this, this, this is getting really serious. And so what that means is that there are things about my past that I need to tell her, things that I've done, things that have been done to me, sins I've committed, suffering I've been through. And, but if she knows, if I tell her, if she discovers more, doesn't that mean she'll love less? And then we get on into marriage. And it's like there's things about me that I didn't even know that start coming out, right? She had a front row seat to this unhealth that was news to both me and to her, right? And it's like there's this fear. If she discovers more, won't she love less? And then we have kids and there's just these markers, right? And she's been gracious and the Lord has sustained us. And and that's not the point. The point is this, even in the relationship on earth, my relationship where I just believe the love has been tested and tested and tested and has been found to be true, even in that relationship, it's only a faint whisper of what we see here with Jesus. The fact that she discovers and still loves and it means the love has persevered and has been strengthened and yet it's been a painful and scary and difficult process and it points to this beautiful reality of love that is just a faint whisper of what we're told about how God sees you. Look right at me. He's always known everything. He has never had to uh, work through something that he discovers about you. He's always seen it. He's always known. Before you knew, he knew. And so the pride and the lies and the struggle and the pain and the doubt and the anger, the things you should have already let go of, the things you let go of and picked back up, the cycle you should have already been out of, it's always been known to him, all in front of him, and it pleased him to love you. It pleased him to save you. It pleased him to make peace with you, to use the power that we don't have to bring peace we can't earn because he loves you, not the undiscovered you, not the partially covered you, but the you that he sees all and loves still, which means, my friend, there is never a fear with God because of Jesus that if he discovers more, he will love Less. It's why Paul in another letter says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I, I just don't know what else could be held up in front of the human heart that is more worthy of love than that. I don't know what else could be held up to be, to be accepted as you are and loved as you are and invited without fear of judgment into honesty and acceptance and transformation. And my friend, brother, sister, to look at that and to be reminded of it, to see it, is to say, okay, God, I'll let go. 
Okay, you can have whatever it is, the false saviors I run to, the lies I run to, the doubt that feels so crippling, I'm letting go because I want to hold on to the love that first held on to me. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. We thank you for the good news in Jesus, that those who had no shot at securing peace for themselves, that those who were far from you, those who didn't know you, those who had no resources to bridge the divide between our sin and your holiness, that God, you're the kind of God, and Jesus, you're the kind of king that takes on human flesh with all the power of God and uses that power to look at those far from you and say, I want peace with you. I'll extend love to you. And so I I, want to pray, God, with my family here in two directions. I want to pray for the man or woman, the young man, the young woman that hears of that love and is haunted by the the thought, yeah, but. The one who hears and has heard before and maybe has heard again in the first responses, for some reason, I'm the exception. There's a part of my past. There's a a way in which I'm struggling. There's a secret that I just am not ready to bring into the light. And so what that means is it's true for everyone else in the room except for me. Would you, Jesus, beautiful, wonderful, powerful King Jesus, would you dismantle right now the doubt and the objection in the mind and hearts all across the room so that we might receive that we might respond, that the moment we reach into our past or present for the objection that would convince us that we are unlovable by you, that you would interrupt that with a vision of you on the cross, a picture of you in my place, in our place, or even just a picture of you right now, Jesus at the right hand of the Father, pleading your case on our behalf to God. You love us. You love us. And then, Lord, I pray that you would, for for the young man, young woman, for the man or woman in the room, that God has just been rebelling against you in a way that's maybe public or in a way that's maybe private, I pray, God, that you would invite, not from a place of fear or consequence, but you would invite from a place of being this magnificent, uncomparable affection to walk into the light. And maybe that's to walk from darkness into light for the first time, to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, to repent of sins and confess. Or maybe that's this coming back, God, where it's I'm going to come back to the things I know to be true because God has watched me run and has waited for me to return, eager to wrap his arms around with grace and mercy. We love you and we thank you. Shall we pray? Amen.